This is available as a podcast and a webinar. Bye! Hi, good afternoon and welcome to our annual Year in Case Law with Judge Jim Blake. Uh, once again, thank you to Judge Jim Blake for making himself available to doing this for us. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Judge Blake does this every year at pretty much every limited jurisdiction judicial conference that we have, and it is always one of the highlights of the conferences. Uh, judge Blake has been a city court judge in Scottsdale for 22 years. Wow, okay. He received his uh, Juris Doctorate from U of A uh, quite a while ago. I'll, I'll say just a few years before I got mine, so that that tells you um, a little something. And he's a longtime prosecutor who's prosecuted major, major crimes. And so it's just, again, a great honor to have Judge Blake presenting for us. And I will turn it over to Judge Blake. Thank you. Again, if you have if, if you have any questions, you can put them in the chat box. You can turn your microphone on and ask. You can turn your camera on uh, and or raise your hand and we'll ask those questions. Otherwise, please have your microphones muted. All right, Judge. Okay, thank you. Uh, welcome to everyone who's uh, uh, here for this today. Um, I've attached the cases. Uh, one thing to remember, though, is to um, always check them yourself. Uh, reason being is you may disagree with my decision as to what the case says. And as we all know, the old joke, if you have three lawyers in a room, you'll have six opinions. So you may have a difference of opinion from mine. And I don't want you to quote the case and then have it brought back to you. And you say, well, wait a minute, I don't agree with that. The other thing to remember is uh, the appellate courts are always changing the law. Um, so don't be offended if your case is one that they have changed. The other reason is, is uh, you get the Supreme Court overturning or changing appellate court law from either division one or two. Um, and so that's another reason you shouldn't take offense if we talk about your case and you're overruled. Because of course, as a limited court jurisdiction judge, uh, you're deciding the case on the fly several times a day is as the trial goes on and you're and the appellate court judges are having a bunch of uh, uh, clerks helping them out they're having a bunch of briefings done and then they make the decision and as our supreme court tells us they got it wrong and so don't be upset if uh, you were overturned or we talk about your case the first one i want to talk about is the one on your screen and basically as you know, for the last couple of years, there have been a lot of new cases on uh, medical records of the victim. And uh, originally they were kind of like, no, you can't get them at all. And then it was kind of like, well, you can get them if there's a specific articulable reason the defense gives as to why they need them. In this case, it has a couple of interesting issues. One is the state doesn't have the victim's medical records and why would they? <laughs> um, and so when they, uh, they want the court to order the state to produce the medical records for an in-camera inspection. And you all sit there and go, oh, as a judge, what can be wrong with that? I'm a judge, I'll review it impartially. There's nothing for the poor victim to be embarrassed about, so turn over the records. Well, first of all, the state says we can't, we don't have them. The uh, order or the hearing should be directed at the victim who actually has the records or can get them from their doctor. Second of all, while no disrespect to the judge is, I don't care that your independent 
and reasonable and stuff. I don't want you seeing my medical records, which uh, as a human being, we can all understand. So it doesn't do much good to say, oh, don't worry, I won't let the defendant see it unless I think it's appropriate. Um, and I'm an independent judge who won't make any judgments at all until I see your records and know all the dirt about you. Um, that it doesn't really fly when you're the victim of the case. And finally, in this case, the court does say, uh, you know, you don't, you should, you should direct this at the victim, not at the state, because the state does not have the records. And in this case, we're not even allowed that because the defendant did not give specific articulable reasons as to why they need the case, just general generalizations and speculative production. And that doesn't overcome the victim's right to privacy and the right to their medical records. So they said, not only are we overturning that court that said the state should produce it because the state doesn't have it, we're not gonna allow them to go after the victim and say the victim should produce it for an in-camera inspection because there's been no specific articulable reasons as to why this would be necessary. So keep that in mind when there's a request for it, they better be specific to the defense and to this particular case. So this is one that gives you authority when you have those type of issues come up. Next case we'll go to is uh, the second one. And this one, it's a uh, case where a person is a, is a DUI, a manslaughter, where the question is, was a person in the crosswalk or not, um, who had the right of way? There's an off the record discussion. And then the judge comes on the record and says, I'm not giving the right of way instruction, uh, whether or not the person is, is or is not in the crosswalk. The person's convicted, there's an appeal up, it's reversed and uh, parties are reminded which uh, whenever we deal with appellate court judge uh, appellate court lawyers or judges they always tell you put everything on the record because when it goes up for review we can't review what your reasoning was why you decided to do something if it's not on the record so be very careful about having off the record discussions first of all don't do it second of all if you're going to violate that rule and do it the next rule is is make sure you repeat on the record what the discussion was have both sides agree and put in your reasoning as to why you did whatever you did but the first important rule is don't violate the first rule put it on the record and then you don't have to worry about repeating it or having anyone agree especially on important matters next case we'll talk about is number three and in this case what's interesting about it is uh, there's a argument on self-defense the court gives the self-defense instruction, but will not give the instruction about crime prevention or defense of residential structure. And uh, it gets overturned on that basis. Now, it gets overturned on one of the basis because on the, uh, uh, the issue of crime prevention, the court says, I'm not giving it because this element of the crime prevention isn't present in this case. Problem is, like I said earlier, when you talk about checking cases to make sure they haven't over, been overturned, there hasn't been a changes, the statute was changed. And that element that the court said didn't apply, and therefore I won't give the instruction, was removed. <laughs> so if they kept up to date on the instruction, I mean on the, on the statute, they'd know that that element isn't there anymore and that that instruction should have been given. Now, on the other instruction, they said on residential structure, you don't have to give it. And in this case, what they talked about is generally a defendant is entitled to instruction on any theory of the case or reasonably supported by the evidence. The slightest evidence of justification is sufficient to entitle the defendant to an instruction. But if the instruction does not fit the facts of a particular case, the trial court does not err by refusing to give it. 
Slightest evidence is a low standard, but speculation and mere inference cannot substitute for evidence. In determining the slightest evidence, we view the facts in the light most favorable to the party requesting the instruction and not and do not weigh the evidence nor resolve evidentiary conflicts. So keep in mind, it's not like um, where there's the conviction and they're going to decide the evidence based more to keeping the uh, the conviction. Um, here, if the party that requesting it gets the instruction, if there's the slightest evidence, a very low standard. So keep that in mind when you're deciding to give or not to give an instruction. The other thing is to make sure the instructions current because instructions do change. We all remember, well, we shouldn't say all remember, people of a certain age like Michelle and I <laughs> remember when the when the state bar, when the Supreme Court came out with Patil and then the state bar decided the Supreme Court got it wrong and added a full paragraph to Patil. And then it yeah, was being given and then it went up and the Supreme Court said, maybe you didn't understand when we said, give this instruction word for word. <laughs> what we meant was give this instruction word for word do it the state the state bar as we all as we didn't quite know it or as i should say as they didn't quite know don't get to overrule the supreme court the supreme court is actually the final say on arizona law so make sure the statute is current make sure the case law is current and make sure the instruction actually follows the law we used to get that a lot in dui law where they used to say that um the Defendant's driving has to be impaired, and it's no, the defendant has to be impaired. So to make sure that when you do instructions that you keep that in mind to keep everything current. And uh, that's one of the reasons we do this every year is because the law changes every year. The Supreme Court's constantly overruling the Court of Appeals, which as trial judges and us getting overruled by the Court of Appeals or the Superior Court, we just love it when they get overruled. <laughs> You know, it's like the old saying that that Charles would tell you revenge is a sweet dish best eaten cold. <laughs> now, the next case I'd like to talk about is one out of uh, we'll uh, we'll go to that one, but I want to bring up one that isn't in the PowerPoint uh, and because it, it doesn't really have a lot to do with everyone, but it's it's an interesting thing. It's out of the city of Scottsdale and basically it's where a defendant feels he's been defamed in a uh, Scottsdale police report. And so he sues and uh, the police officers who wrote the report are also the victims in the case. And in that there's an app, as most of you know, uh, police officers have qualified immunity. Judges have absolute immunity. In uh, this case, in a police report statement for defamation, victims are given absolute immunity on what they say. And the, because here they tried to say, well, the police officers don't get absolute immunity because they're police officers, even though they're victims. And in this case, city of Scottsdale, the uh, Court of Appeals said back in May of 31, 2022, that officers are entitled to absolute immunity for defamation in statements they put in their police report where they are the victims. So that might be important if that case ever comes up or if there's an issue about the police reports comments. That's uh, listed as number four in your written materials. I didn't include it in the PowerPoint because um, it doesn't really affect criminal law, that sort of thing. So now we'll move on to this case that is up here, Morgan. And basically this had to do with uh, uh, one of the rules that we do where we have um, 
uh, you use either names or you use numbers. The courts prefer and the rules prefer you use numbers so that uh, jurors are not identified and so that they can't be harassed, um, that sort of thing. Now, um, and this is a, a case out of Mojave County. And of course, uh, they were going to use numbers, not juror names for selection. The state didn't care and was fine with it. The court obviously was fine with it because they were giving it. The defense was fine with it because they were giving it. So guess who cared? The press, because of course the press has a right to everything, can do everything they want, and that by not listing their names, it was a violation of the First Amendment because the right press has a right to know their names so they can bother them, not just the defendant or not just witnesses or not just uh, anyone else involved in the case. So it went up to the Arizona Supreme Court, and in that case, the Arizona Supreme Court uh, were in the, I believe it was Mojave County, was using names, uh, not number, I was using numbers, not names for jury selection. And uh, the issue, the Supreme Court said, the issue here is whether the First Amendment to the United States Constitution prohibits the court's routine use of numbers for jurors. Specifically, we are asked to decide whether the First Amendment provides a public a qualified right of access, and by public they mean the press, to jurors' names during uh, jury selection, thereby creating presumptive access to those names that can be overcome only on a case-by-case -case basis by showing of both a compelling state interest and the nine access is a remedy narrowly tailored to serve that interest. And the Supreme Court said, we hold the First Amendment does not again, does not prohibit the court's practice of using numbers, not names. So unfortunately, the press lost and the courts can still go on using numbers, not names for jury selection. Uh, let's move on to the next case. The next case, um, I just wanted to, before we get to this one, I wanted to bring up another one that I didn't include in the PowerPoint because it doesn't really affect us, but I think you should know about it. Um, basically, um, a person's in jail, they file a PCR, and they've taken several continuances, and the judge says your PCR has to be filed by, and I'll make up a date, um, March 13th. Now, the problem is, of course, the person's in jail, and even appellate courts look unkindly on people escaping from jail to file a PCR. So what the person does is they file it with the legal services in the jail. Uh, in this case, it's a prison. And normally what they do is they give you the mailbox rule. If it arrives within three days, because you couldn't actually come and serve it at the courthouse or file it at the courthouse without escaping, Again, as I said, that's frowned upon by the authorities and us being part of the authorities. Um, and, you know, it doesn't do any good. Like when we say, well, why didn't you show up? Well, um, I was in custody. But, well, you could have escaped and come in. Why didn't you show up? But in this case, the judge says, nope, you didn't file it within the time limit. It arrived three days late, uh, even though it was followed through like it should be. Um, and here they said, no, we're going to apply the mailbox rule because he's in custody and because we discourage escape prisoners from showing up in the courthouse to file things, uh, we will allow it the way it is. Um, just so you know, uh, Charles, we're on number seven. That's what we're moving to next. OK, now on number seven, this is a rule 11 and uh, it overturns an earlier case. And this case asks us to determine whether 
in a case where a defendant's competency has been put in issue, of course, though, it's been resolved. The defendant is now competent and uh, the defendant wishes to waive the right to a jury trial. Um, and um, they and the defendant does waive a right to a jury trial, is convicted at the bench trial, and then they decide when there's an issue of Rule 11 or an issue of competency and the, and the defendant's found competent and the court wishes to, uh, the defendant, sorry, the defendant wishes to waive the jury trial and be heard on a bench trial. Does the court have to find a higher competency with respect to waiving a jury trial? In this case, the person had a very good reason uh, because of his name. The, uh, he felt that maybe a jury might be less inclined to acquit or hear the evidence. And so he wanted, because of 9-11, that sort of thing, he wanted a judge to hear the case. And of course, once the judge heard the case and was convicted, then suddenly, oh no, we should go back to a jury. They found, no, we conclude that Arizona law does not require a specific finding of heightened competency with respect to a jury trial waiver. So even though there's been an issue of the person's competency, they've been declared competent, they still can waive the jury and you don't have to do a higher competency in order to allow that waiver. Um, you just the normal competency that the waiver's done knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily done. There's a written waiver they can sign. And we're going to go into that in a later case where they had a written waiver. Repeatedly on the record, the defendant said, I want to waive jury trial. They let him waive jury trial after the convicted. Oh, you should have done more. <laughs> and the appellate court said, no, that was enough. But there was a strong dissent on it. But we'll get to that later on. Let's move on to the next case. Number eight. Now, in this case, they're going to bring in a, uh, a child to testify. And the defendant, despite being awarded the Father of the Year Award by Criminals Inc., um, he's, the police are basically coming in to arrest him. He gives his five-year, four-year-old son at the time fentanyl pills to put in his pocket because we all know a four-year-old is never going to put anything in their mouth that they shouldn't put in their mouth but he's willing to take the risk that his four-year-old will die so he doesn't be caught with the fentanyl pills. The police find the fentanyl pills before the four-year-old can swallow them and die. And of course, when asked, the child says, daddy <laughs> gave them to me. So when the trial comes up, the defendant is five, the victim, the witness, sorry, is five, the child is five, and they try to throw out, say the child can't testify because they're not really competent. Um, in Arizona, uh, as the lowest I know that's been ruled competent to testify as a four-year-old, I was one of the people who, uh, in, a, in a case I did, the uh, the child was four. The person had molested an eight-year-old in California, molested the four-year-old here, and was trying to babysit a two-year-old when I got a hold of him. So the uh, four-year-old has been ruled that they could testify. It's an independent examination. Now, what's interesting in some states is they have um, kind of an age limit they look at or, or one of the things where the person might be determined a certain age to be incompetent um, and a judge could then uh, review the witness, check out the witness and determine if the witness is competent or not. We don't have that in Arizona. In Arizona, every witness is competent to testify. And on this case, on appeal, the court defers to Superior Court's determination regarding the witness's competency to testify. The court will re reverse the Superior Court competency decision only if the decision 
constitutes a clear abuse of discretion. In any criminal trial, every person is competent to be a witness in Arizona. Neither age, mental capacity, nor feeble-mindedness renders a witness incompetent or disqualified. Instead, competency depends on a witness's ability to observe, recollect, or to communicate about an event in question. So that is what you're going to decide is, is this witness competent to testify? Age doesn't matter, uh, either young or as people getting my age worry about old. <laughs> um, the, it's the judge's determination. So the witness can be examined by the judge. In my case, where we did it, where the child was four year olds, you know, the judge did a thing. Do you know about a difference between a truth and a lie? If I was to say uh, Jim Blake is the smartest, best looking judge there is, he would say yes. Now, would that be a truth or a lie? And the witness answered it would be a delusion. <laughs> yes, Charles. Oh, did you have something, Charles? Oh, I thought I saw a hand or something. No, I, I, that was a thumbs, thumbs up on uh, you being the most handsome and intelligent. <laughs> well, they thought it was a delusion and probably was. Um, but so keep that in mind. Um, the what's interesting, though, is one of let me get the thing here. OK, so it's important to keep that in mind that you're going to determine it as a judge. The other thing is, is I would put again, like we talked about in one of the earlier cases, uh, things not being on the record. I would put as much as you can on the record why you determine this witness to be competent. Um, and that way it's, it helps the Superior Court when they're reviewing it and the Court of Appeals if they have to review it or the Supreme Court if they have to review it. And remember, you don't get overturned unless they can show that it was a, uh, a clear abuse of discretion. That's why it's important to have as much detail as possible. And a lot of times you hear people say, well, child, you have to determine if they're competent or not. No, every person is presumed to be competent. Um, but again, with a young child like that or someone with mental impairments or issues like that, make sure you've, if, if the issue is raised, that you put on the record why you found this person to be competent so that you can maintain the case and you don't have to go back years later. And of course, if the record's not there, the record's not there. So you want to be real careful about that. OK, our next case is one that's uh, causing a lot of trouble. Uh, State versus Stowe. And this has to do with subsection I and interlock on extreme uh, 1.5 or extreme 2.0. And um, this case, it's very um, interestingly written because the court uses the word absurd repeatedly to describe um, a result that I think is natural <laughs> or is the result that would occur. Um, I don't think the word absurd is correct. And you would think that a court of appeals would be more judicious in the terminology it uses. I understand both arguments. I just think the other argument is the better argument. Um, the uh, I don't think the court's decision is absurd. I wouldn't use that word. They just came down on the other side of the issue than I would. And of course, court of appeals have to be um, uh, followed. Um, uh, but like I said, I wouldn't use their word absurd to describe their decision. And I wish they wouldn't use the word to describe as absurd to describe what I think is the correct ruling. 
But in this case, what happens, and I'm not sure how the state would know all this, the person is placed on probation, they're uh, subsection I for the interlock, the person doesn't get the interlock because the person is not allegedly driven in a year, does not own a car or cannot own a car for the year, and therefore uh, it would be absurd not to give them the reduced jail uh, because they don't drive and because uh, no longer and because they don't have a car. Um, so the person didn't have to put an interlock on and was given the same benefit as if they had done what you or I would have to do, have a car, have an interlock on and follow it for a year. Now, what's interesting about this is there's incredible interpretations by all the different parties. The, the defense is interpreting that it is, is every defendant is entitled to the Stowe ruling if they don't get a car and they don't drive for a year. First of all, how would you know that? Uh, you might know if they bought a car because you could check the registration, that sort of thing. Um, one of the things that I was shocked about when I became a judge in, in misdemeanor court because I'd only ever done felonies is how many people actually drive with a suspended license. I could not believe how many cases there are out there. I'm thinking, you know, I thought when I come down, oh, there'd be a few, uh, but half our calendar would sometimes be people driving on a suspended license. So it happens all the time. So just because they don't have a license or don't get one doesn't mean they're not driving. Um, second of all, um, you get people who in some cities who are rich and they go, fine, I won't drive for a year, I'll have a driver. Well, that's not actually um, causing a lot of heartache or problem. Um, and uh, the other thing that's important to remember on subsection I is the key word may. May. In this case, the judge doesn't want to, the, I'm sorry, in this case, the judge wants to give the benefit of the subsection I without them putting it on the car, without them doing any of this. And the state has, for some reason, cooperated, even though they're against that, by saying, yes, we agree and stipulate the defendant doesn't have a car, can't get a car, and has not driven in a year. Again, I don't know how they would know that, but we're li limited by the facts of the case. So the defense says that if um, the defendant doesn't have a car, isn't going to get a car, and isn't going to drive, then they should still get the, for a year, then they should still get the benefit of the subsection I, and the court has no discretion. The state here, at least, I don't know what they're doing in other cities or JP districts, says that uh, no, it only applies if you're on probation. I don't understand that argument, to be honest. Um, but the key is that I would bring up to all the judges is this is your discretion because subsection I is not the court shall give them subsection I if they're going to have a car, if they're going to drive, and if they're going to have the interlock installed for a year. It says the court may do this. So you always have the discretion to say, uh, you don't have a car, you're not driving for a year, I'm not giving you subsection I. Because again, remember, the key wording in the statute is the court may do it, not shall do it. So it's up to the judge how they want to do it. And I'll give you an example where I think it would probably be extremely appropriate. In your drunk driving, you get into a car accident and your spine is severed. You're, um, you cannot move from the neck down. Why do we say, um, well, I'm not, I know you can never drive again in your life. I know you can never uh, work an interlock 
because you can't get it up there and you can't drive because you don't have no use of your hands or that sort of stuff. So I'm going to make you, I'm not going to give you value of subsection I, I'm going to make you uh, serve that extra time in jail. Well, that would actually be where I would agree with the Court of Appeals. It would be absurd not to allow that. And as may would allow you to do that. Where I don't like it is you get cases where people just go, well, I'm moving to New York. They have great mass transit, so I'm not going to get a car. Just give me the benefit of it. No, I'm not going to do that. So keep in mind, Stowe is out there. There's incredible uh, interpretation by different sides as to what it means. But again, it's always up to you. May. You may do it. And you make that decision as the judge. Um, think. One of the other things is, remember, this is an appellate court case. I don't know if either side is taking it up. Obviously, the defense wouldn't take it up because it goes to their benefit. I don't know if the prosecutors have ever filed to take it up and get a decision. And again, this is an older case, but originally it was non-published. And then there was a request to publish it, and that's why it's now published. And it is now um, uh, uh, case law to be considered. Okay, let's go on to our next case. This one is kind of interesting. I haven't heard what's happened to it since it was done. It was a federal case. And you know, we all know with the uh, where the defense or their agents are not allowed to contact the victims. They must go through the prosecutor and the victim with the victim's bill of rights. And this case and the federal case said back in November of last year that it's a violation of the US state, uh, United States Constitution free speech amendment and enjoined its enforcement. So it'd be kind of interesting. Now, I haven't really heard it be an issue because generally the defense wants the state to set up the interviews for it. And they don't want to go out and try to find the victim. I don't know what's happened in other courts, but it hasn't, hasn't been an issue in Scottsdale. Has anyone had any issues in their cities or justice courts where this has become an issue uh, where the state has objected to the defendant contacting the victims? I'm not aware of any issue there, but there is a pending rule petition that would adopt this um, change into the uh, rules of criminal procedure. Okay. So I guess we'll wait to see what actually happens, but um, it hasn't been an issue that I've seen because um, generally, like I said, in our cases, um, well, first of all, in a lot of cases in misdemeanor court, there aren't victims, but there are in a certain percentage. And usually the defense wishes the state to, you know, say yes or no, one way or the other, and that way they don't get involved in it. But this case is out there, so keep that in mind. If the prosecutor ever says, oh my God, the defendant, defense attorney contacted the victim, you should do something. Say, well, it's been enjoined uh, by the federal courts. So keep that in mind because that might come an issue. You want to be aware of this if it does come up as an issue. Okay, let's go to the next case. Now, in this case, um, the they want to bring in a defense expert to testify in a 404 C hearing and the uh, the expert is on the has examined the defendant and is going to be like, well, he really couldn't have done this. I've examined him. Uh, this is not a pattern, that type of thing and a mental health issue. Um, the state then says, well, we want to examine um, the defendant if this is going to be done in an evidentiary hearing. And the trial court says no, and the appellate court says yes. If it's going to be brought up and it's a mental health issue and they want to use it as a way to defeat the 404 C hearing, 
then the court must allow the state's expert to examine the defendant upon request. So keep that in mind if that occurs. We don't get that much in um, in uh, limited jurisdiction courts, but it does come up occasionally. Um, I haven't really had this issue come up, but I want you to be aware of it in case it does come up, because the first thing the state's going to do is say we want to examine the defendant. And of course, the fence will say no, <laughs> this isn't a mental health examination, and we're not offering it a trial for a defense. If we're going to offer a trial, yes, you can have our client examined by law. We don't like it, but by law you can. But this is an evidentiary hearing. It's not a trial issue. It's a 404C hearing. And in this case, they say, no, you have to allow the state's expert to examine the defendant if you're going to produce this type of evidence in the 404C hearing. Um, next case I want to go to is number 12. This is the case I talked to you about earlier where we were doing the waiver. Remember the one about if the person is, there's a competence issue, they're found competent, do you have to have a higher standard to waive a jury trial? They said no. In this case, they go on about waiving the jury trial. And um, it, it, you kind of wonder about, especially in the dissent, that what is more is a court supposed to do to get a waiver? Um, the issue in this case, it involves child pornography. So, you know, you can understand why a person might want a judge making the ruling as opposed to a uh, um, a jury. Uh, you know, the, the judge would be more uh, cerebral, have less emotion, that sort of stuff. I'm not sure that's necessarily true, but that's the issue they're looking at. And the defendant decides, I want to waive the jury trial and have a judge uh, do the trial. There's a signed waiver. Okay, so you got that. The court addresses the defendant repeatedly on the record. So you got that. The defendant repeatedly says on the record, I want the court to decide this, not a jury. Of course, after conviction, wait a minute, <laughs> you didn't decide it was voluntary, like would be required in a plea. And the court says under our criminal rules, the defendant's waiver of that right must be in writing and on the record in open court. The court must address the defendant personally, inform the defendant's right to a jury trial and determine the defendant's waiver is knowingly, voluntarily and intelligent. The waiver was upheld here, but always if appropriate, find the waiver to be knowingly, voluntarily, and intelligently on the record. Make sure you do all this on the record. Make sure you get that signed waiver and make sure you just find it to be knowingly, voluntarily, and intelligent so that you don't have this issue arise later on. But in this case, it's like, what more do you want? Written waiver, address repeatedly in court. Now, I mean, generally when we do it, we get a written waiver and we address the defendant one time and then set it to, uh, set it to a bench trial but make sure you do all this on the record. Make sure it's there for the appellate court because you know the minute it's found, you find, find the defendant guilty, that's going to be the appellate issue. Oh, you shouldn't have given me what I wanted. <laughs> so make sure you do all this and establish a good record so that uh, you don't get overturned. And again, like I said, in this court, what? and of course the Court of Appeals agreed, what more do you want than what they did here? Waiver and address personally in court repeatedly. Okay, our next case is um, in this. Let's go to Fort. Uh, next one. Whoops. See your star. Okay, this has to do with a Rule 11 where the defendant is found incompetent, and what they want to do is bring out the the Rule 11. Uh, they redact the statements of the defendant that are incriminating. And remember, what's important here is the defendant has been found incompetent. And why is that done? Why it's important to redact those comments? 
because the defendant cannot waive his Fifth Amendment right. And why can't the defendant waive his Fifth Amendment right? Everyone can waive their Fifth Amendment constitutional right. Well, you can, but you cannot do that if you're incompetent, because the whole purpose of waiving your Fifth Amendment right is to do it intelligently, voluntarily, and, and uh, competently. If you're incompetent, you just can't do it. It doesn't occur. So since the defendant cannot waive his Fifth Amendment right, you cannot use those statements against the defendant because he was interviewed and had no right, had did not waive his Fifth Amendment right because he is not competent. And therefore they agree, uh, the, by extension, we agree with King that because he cannot waive his Fifth Amendment rights, any of his, statement, any of his statements that implicate those Fifth Amendment rights found in Dr. Weber's report cannot be disclosed. Now, if he's found competent, there can be a waiver. Um, I don't know why he'd want to, but if he's found competent, he can waive the Fifth Amendment right. Um, it's one of those things when you think about it, it's, it's like, well, of course, of course he can't waive the Fifth Amendment right. He's not competent to do it. And his lawyer can't do it. Why? Because the Fifth Amendment right is personal to the defendant. The lawyer has no right to waive the Fifth Amendment right for the, um, for the um, defendant. Only the defendant can do that. Okay. Let's go on to our next one. Now, this is a granting of a pot expungement, and this has kind of a couple interesting rules. The state complains that you cannot expunge the marijuana conviction in this case because it exceeds the amount allowed under expungement. Defendant says, wait a minute, the plea agreement doesn't have that amount. This is just, you know, an amount of marijuana not an excessive amount, not the amount that stops expungement. Court grants the expungement. The state appeals up to the uh, to Court of Appeals saying uh, this shouldn't happen. Now, what's interesting is Court of Appeals says, well, this isn't an appealable issue, so you can't appeal this. However, you could special action it. And for purposes of this, we're going to treat it as a special action, not as appeal. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, they didn't just say, well, uh, too bad, you're out of luck. You should have special action debt, so you're out of luck. You can't appeal this issue. They treat it as a special action, and they hold. One, the courts may consider any admissible evidence the parties present regarding a petitioner's eligibility for expungement. Two, Superior Court may abuse its discretion if it fails to hold an evidentiary hearing on a contested expungement petition. So if it's contested, make sure you show a hearing or grant a hearing if the parties want it. Orders granting or denying expungement must include the facts the court relied on in reaching its decision. So if you're going to have expungement, and we do occasionally in, uh, in uh, uh, limited jurisdiction courts, it does occur, keep all this in mind. An interesting fact that you may not know of is city courts used to always do marijuana convictions as, as a uh, Michelle can tell you, we used to do that. In, uh, well, we didn't do them in felony court, even though it was a six done as a misdemeanor. The only reason that pot convictions went to Superior Court is because when they changed the law in drug convictions, because Michelle and I were both, at, I think you were still there, the county attorney's office, when they changed the law, is the fines used to go to the cities. So the cities were happy to do pot cases. Um, and uh, because they got the fine money. When they changed the law on drug convictions, all the fines went to a fund, not to the cities. 
And the city said, well, fine, you do it. We're not doing it. And the only cases we used to do with pot cases, Michelle and I, is when um, they were in an unincorporated area and we do it in justice court. But once the city's no longer got the money, they said, it's your problem, not ours. That's why in cities, you don't see pot cases, you see possession of drug paraphernalia only. Because uh, we used to just do, uh, cities used to just do them all, but when they didn't get the money, they go, we're not gonna do the work, you do the work. <laughs> But in this case, um, these are the things to rely on if there's a contested um, pot case. And what's interesting is we'll get to it later on is there's another pot case where um, the state doesn't contest it. And the judge says, well, I'm going to contest it. I'm not giving it to you. <laughs> and they bring that up. But let's this one is just this is what you need to do when you have a contested pot case. Now let's go on to our next case. Now this has to do with nunk pro tunk um, orders. And in this case, the judge after decades, well not the judge, because he's gone, <laughs> but the judge uh, after decades decides, well, this person should have really been eligible for parole after 25 years in this murder case. But that wasn't done on the record. As a matter of fact, it was the opposite on the record that they weren't gonna get it. So they decide, well, let's change all this after decades to allow this person now to get the possibility of parole after 25 years. So they do a nunk pro tunk order saying that, well, there was an error. And what we really meant to say was this person should be eligible after 25 years for parole. And it goes up. That's why you're seeing it as Shine versus Arizona Board of Clemency because they start going, well, wait a minute, there's a problem here. And the problem is a non-pro-tunk order is to correct a clerical error, not a judicial error. So the only time you can use a non-pro-tunk under 24.4 rules of criminal procedure is if there's been some clerical error that everyone's found and you agree it's a clerical error and now you're changing the record to reflect the clerical error. What was really being done in this case was to correct a judicial error, which is not what rule 24.4 is for. And actually, it isn't even a judicial error because a judicial error would be as something occurred where you made, you made a mistake. In this case, they're correcting what actually occurred and saying, well, what really occurred isn't what we wanted to occur. This is what we really wanted after 25 years. And they said, no, you can't really do that. You're out of luck. So remember, if you're going to do a non-proton, it is only to correct the true clerical error established by the record and not to change what the judge did, which is also changing what actually occurred in court. So keep that in mind. If you're going to do a non-proton, it has to be a clerical error, not what would be called a judicial error. Okay, our next one is, um, this is interesting because um, when we get to case number 20, it kind of, in my opinion, it creates an issue between the um, courts of Division One and Division Two. And in this case, the uh, restitution hasn't been paid. So the judge says, I'm going to uh, uh, extend your restitution by three years. So, I mean, I'm sorry, let me rephrase. I'm going to extend your probation by three years so you can complete paying your restitution. And there's a statute that allows the court to do it. In this case, they talk about the defendant agrees with it. 
Well, it's good that the defendant agreed, but under the statute, you don't need the defendant to agree to it. You can do it as a judge, just as long as you give notice to the defendant prior to the expiration of the probation. So keep that in mind. If they haven't paid restitution, there's a specific statute that allows you to extend probation uh, to get the restitution paid. And the question comes is, and there was a case last time that we talked about, is does it extend probation for everything or just restitution? And unless you limit it to restitution, it extends it for everything. So keep that in mind. Now, what happens in this case is they extend it for the three years. Defendant agrees. But again, remember, defendant doesn't have to. Just has to have notice that you're going to do this and input prior to the expiration of the probation. And what happens is the defendant violate, allegedly violates their probation during the three years. So the state moves to revoke the probation, not in restitution, but probably, you know, didn't remain law abiding or something like that. So the defendant then says, um, hey, wait a minute. Um, I want you now <laughs> to uh, get rid of the three year extension because, you know, you just wanted me to pay restitution and I don't want to have my probation revoked and be sent to prison or whatever um, or uh, penalized again because of this other violation. The court agrees and vacates the three year extension. Um, now, the problem is, is the state says, wait a minute, you can't do that. And so they go up to the Court of Appeals and the Court of Appeals says, yes, the court can't do that. But what they do is they give us an out for the, for the court. They say, our holding today therefore clarifies that the court lacks jurisdiction to vacate the three year probation extension order, but to give the court an out, but does not in any way affect the court's ability to modify uh, Moore's probation going forward. For example, upon hearing motions, Moore's motion to vacate in 2021, the court had jurisdiction and discretion to modify or terminate their probation as of that date. So the court couldn't go back and say, hey, I'm going to change my prior ruling, but hey, we're deciding whether you violate your probation. You violate your probation, it's terminated. I'm not going to do anything. You're free to go. Thank you very much for calling in and being a player. So they allow the court to do what it really wanted to do and not give higher penalty or anything like that just by saying you couldn't vacate the three-year order, but you can just terminate probation at that point because um, of their holding them. Let's go on to the next one, number 17. Now, this is one which I don't understand why the judge did what they did. And if they're listening or if they're at one of these presentations, maybe you can say, well, this is why stupid. If you were a really good judge, you'd know this. But in this case, the defendant wants to do a pot expungement. The state does not contest it. The judge decides I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and they uh, they say the burden is on the state to object to the expungement and prove by clear and convincing evidence the defendant is not entitled to expungement. The defendant does not have to show that he is or she is entitled to expungement. In this case, the state didn't care. I don't know why the judge cared. Um, you know, maybe they had just seen the movie. Uh, Michelle and I have talked about it. The documentary, remember Michelle, about how um, uh, reefer madness 
Uh, if you take marijuana, you immediately go crazy, play the piano like a nut and then jump out of skyscraper windows. That's how Michelle and I found out we can play the piano. <laughs> That's just a joke. It's not really true. But um, but um, in this case, I'm not sure why the judge, if the state doesn't complain and the defendant says I'm entitled to it, and it's the state burden to complain and prove that the person's not eligible, why the judge cared. But keep this in mind, if you're for some reason thinking, I don't want to grant this expungement, the state has to complain. The state has to prove by clear and convincing evidence the defendant is not entitled to it. You can't say to the defendant, I don't think you should get this. Prove I'm wrong. That isn't how it works. So keep that in mind. Next case is one of our COVID cases. And this has to do with uh, how we would seat juries. Uh, we don't really have this issue anymore, but it's important for anyone who sat a jury during COVID. I've done it myself. And uh, we were sitting them in the back so that they were spread out. Some Sometimes they'd be in the jury box, but they wouldn't have them all there because they're kind of sitting right next to each other, at least in our court, in a jury box. So we put some in the uh, back area. And in this case, the defendant complained, said somehow he felt this gave the prosecutor to unfair advantage. Now, in our case, what we did is we would put a couple in the jury box, we put a couple behind the state, a couple behind the defense. In this case, they put a couple in the jury box and all the ones behind the state. The defendant was complaining. Um, the Court of Appeals disagreed and said, that's fine. You can do that. So keep that in mind. If you had any cases done during COVID and that's one of the appeal issues, you should be upheld. If any of this ever occurs again um, and we have this type of issue, this has been approved so you can separate the jury, space them out, that sort of thing. Um, so here's a case you can use if this becomes an issue in your court, if we have another pandemic, um, but supposedly they come every 100 years. So I don't think we would have to particularly worry about it, <laughs> you know, because we're not going to get to be that old. <laughs> so keep that in mind if that issue comes up. Next case I wanted to talk about was um, there is just an interesting issue, and I don't know how it came up, but somehow the state wanted to use justification defenses for the victim. The victim was justified to do all this as a um, and they, and the reason that it was important is in 13-404A, it doesn't refer to defendant, justification for the defendant. It says justification for a person. <laughs> And of course, a victim can be a person, a defendant can be a person. Why you would want to, first of all, the defendant, the victim doesn't have to justify anything. They're the victim. So they don't need justification. The jury doesn't decide if the victim was justified. And you can see how Michelle's getting upset at this time. <laughs> but they said, no, the, even though it says person, justification only applies to the defendant's conduct. So it's only the defendant that that's concerned about. If that becomes an issue, I've never seen that as an issue, but evidently it does arise because it happened in this case. Next one we'd like to talk about is, this is the one I was talking about on uh, uh, probation and revoking probation. And basically what happens is the defendant is sentenced to prison on one count and lifetime probation on another count. Now, guess what type of charge that is? <laughs> It's obviously a child sexual count. And the, when the defendant's in prison, the defendant decides, you know what? 
just revoke my probation, sentence me to prison on that other count so I can get this all done and I don't have to have a lifetime probation. The court denies the request, feeling it lacks jurisdiction. After release from prison, the defendant renews its request, and in this time, the, the judge has changed their opinion, thinks I do have jurisdiction to do this, and grants it and uh, revokes the person's probation. State special actions this result, and the judge is overturned. The state argued that the respondent judge lacked discretion to revoke uh, the person's probation in absence of a petition to revoke. We agree, and there is no rule or statute that gives the trial judge authority to do so, and the respondent erred by concluding otherwise. This strikes me as odd because I was always trained that the defendant can reject probation. I guess they can only reject probation when you're imposing it, not afterwards. Um, so um, keep that in mind that uh, remember the defendant always has the right to reject probation at sentencing and then you have to because they don't have to agree to it. I had a case once with um, some of the uh, uh, they weren't white supremacists, they're constitutionalists and um, they were the judge goes um, they were the oldest gang member I ever sent to prison. He was 86 years old and his son who was 56 and the judge goes I would place you on probation but you have to agree to it. If you don't agree to it and they had no criminal record, I'm going to have to send you to prison. And it was funny because the judge was this old judge from Yuma County that they brought up to hear the case because um, the uh, the four of my victims were Superior Court judges. And it was interesting to see the defendant go to the judge. Well, look here, young man. And the judge was ancient, in my opinion. <laughs> and I was like, oh, young man, he's an old codger. But of course, I didn't say that. Um, and um, they said, I'm not going to accept probation. I said, fine, I have no thing but to send you to prison. So if the defendant accepts probation, and this was always, I always thought if they come in and say, I don't want probation anymore, you just revoke them and then sentence them. Here they're saying you can't do it absent a petition to revoke. So keep that in mind. Again, though, it doesn't address when you're placing them on probation. They can refuse probation at the time. But I thought that was interesting because I would have thought it was just the opposite that if they come in and say, I don't want probation, okay, uh, then we'll do another sentence. Uh, the state come in, a victim come in if they want, and we'll do the sentence. Here it's saying you can't do it unless there's a petition to revoke. Okay, let's go to the next case. This has to do with the famous thing of you're not, uh, you're warned that if you don't show up within, if you're convicted and don't show up within sentencing within 90 days, you give up the, or you may give up the right to appeal. I don't know how you guys handle it. That's one of the things I do at arraignment is I address them and I say, uh, you need to know if you're convicted of any of these criminal offenses and you do not show up at your arraignment. I mean, if you do not show up at your sentencing, I said arraignment at the time I'm doing it, I'm in big trouble because that's not the law. But if you don't show up within 90 days of your sentencing, of your conviction for sentencing, you may give up the right to appeal. You have to tell them that. In this case, they tell the person and the person signs a written waiver that that could occur. So keep that in mind. If they're not told, it's not it's not valid because they're not, it has to be knowingly, voluntarily, intelligently done. If they're not told that's an issue, you're out of luck. So make sure the judge tells them. You might want to consider that in all your arraignments to tell them that as part of their arraignment, that if they are convicted and don't show up at sentencing within 90 days, they may give up the right to appeal. Second of all, in this case, what happens is the guy uh, uh, scrams before the conviction, but you know that the trial had started and he fled and then he was arrested for 90 days after the conviction. So you have that issue there. 
You have that he signed a waiver. You have that he was told. This should always be done at sentencing too, by the way, because what will happen is under the old case, because there were all not get a lot of cases on this. First, they were just doing, well, it's automatic. Then they're saying, no, defendant has to be told. Okay. Then they were uh, told, but there was nothing done at sentencing. So go up on appeal. And when the person appealed, the state would say, you have to deny the appeal. They were told this. And there was that. And they said, no, this has to, this is a factual determination has to be done at sentencing. So the state has to say at sentencing, judge, he was told, or you could say it, Mr. Defendant, for my record, I told you that if you didn't show up within 90 days of your conviction, you may give up the right to appeal. I have no basis for you not showing up. Therefore, I find it was knowingly, intelligently, and voluntary that you didn't show up. But here's an important thing now that this case says, step three, number three, uno, dos, tres. There has to be the third thing is, you have to provide the defendant with an opportunity. Is there anything you want to say or prove as to why you didn't show up and why it was not voluntary that you didn't appear? Well, the thing could be is, like we all talked about, how judges are discouraged people from escaping from jail or prison in order to show up at sentencing or at a court appearance. Yes, judge, I was in Arizona State Prison and you can check it out. I was there and I've been there ever since the conviction or that's why I didn't show up for the rest of the trial is I got arrested and they sent me to prison. That can show that the absence was not voluntary. Now, generally, they can't show anything. Well, I, I thought I was going to go to prison, so I didn't want to show up. That's why I wasn't here. That's not involuntary, is it? Well, yes, that is involuntary. That is not involuntary. So make sure that if you're going to do this, first of all, you do it at sentencing. Second of all, you told him or got some type of waiver that he knew he, if he didn't show up in the 90 days of conviction, he would give up that right. And three, well, also two, the waiver has to be knowing, intelligent, and voluntarily. That can be proved by the circumstances. You weren't here. You didn't show up. Therefore, I find that's the case. But then make sure you give the defendant the right to show I was not here. I, my absence wasn't involuntary. I didn't, I couldn't come. Here's why. Um, I was in jail. I was in the hospital in a coma, <laughs> that sort of thing. And he, the defendant, must prove it by clear and convincing evidence. Now, there was a case, uh, Raphael, that the defense was trying to use to show you couldn't do this. And the court said specifically, we disavow Raphael to the extent that it may be construed to require trial courts to define, to find that a defendant expressly waived the right to appeal. They can do it by their conduct. So keep that in mind, and that can save a lot on cases where um, the defendant does not appear um, for the sentencing. Okay. And, and, and just a reminder, uh, Rule 14.4 does require at arraignment that you do tell the defendant that if they uh, if it if they fail to appear at sentencing and that delays their sentencing for more than 90 days, they may lose the right to a direct appeal. Right, and that's the key big issue make sure you do that, um, that that should be part of your arraignment. Okay, um, our next case has to do with self-representation. Now, in this case, as we all know, defendants have a right to represent themselves. The case, in this case, the court goes into court, the judge does, and they're gonna, they allow this after questioning the defendant that he could represent himself, and then 27 minutes later, revoke. The defendant's right to represent himself and this wasn't the trial setting so it's not like you know we start the trial and i'm revoking it this is pre-trial um and in this case 
what I find really interesting is the judge will allow you to represent yourself in this court. Um, I, I don't remember which court it is, but in this court they have a pretrial statement you have to file. And the public defender goes, Your Honor, if you would like, I will stay and help the defendant with the, even though I've now been released and the defendant is going to represent himself. Uh, key is what I would always do is I probably wouldn't, especially if they have a public defender, I wouldn't allow the defense attorney, the public defender to withdraw. I'd say you're going to be advisory counsel. You've already paid for them. They're already there and the defendant doesn't have to use them if they don't want to. And that way, if there's some issue later on, you can just reappoint them as counsel, but keep them as advisory counsel is my um, thing that I would say to you. Um, next is though, the, the, the court is informed less than 27 minutes that the defendant will not sign the document, the pretrial statement. So the court comes back in, you're not going to find a uh, defendant, you're not going to find sign the pretrial statement. The defendant says, no, I'm not going to sign it. He does not understand it and it is a contract. Judge says, no, it's not. It's a statement basically saying what's occurred and what's going to occur. Defendant says, I'm not going to sign it. That's when the judge says, you're not going to represent yourself. I'm going to reappoint the public defender. Now, to me, having uh, prosecuted and having been a judge and constitutionalist, to me, this screams out, this is a constitutionalist you're dealing with. And why would I say that based on what I just read to you? No one, okay? Because the defendant says this is a contract. It's not a contract, but all the constitutionalists say anything you do in paper is a contract. Now, I don't know that he was a constitutionalist, but the minute I read that, I go, constitutionalist. Um, so keep that in mind. Now, the problem is here is they do the trial, Defendants convicted and appeals saying I didn't get my right to a trial and they say yes, they reverse it because several things is if you're going to deny the defendant a constitutional right, make sure you take your time. Don't after 27 minutes after granting it say no. Second of all, remember if this is occurring to you, there's nothing that requires this form. It's your court form that you use. So don't get high and mighty when the defendant says I'm not going to sign. It. Second of all, you're dealing with a pro per now. They may not actually understand it. So you might want to inquire rather than just saying, well, if you're going to be that way, you're not representing yourself. You might want to inquire uh, what's the issue with the document, sir? Is there something you disagree with? Why do you disagree with this? That sort of thing. And again, like I said, is this isn't required by the rules to sign this form. You can just say fine. Um, you know, like say the defendant, um, let me think of it, like release conditions. I'm not going to force, if he doesn't want to sign the release conditions, I'm going to say defendant on the record refuses to sign the release conditions. I'm not going to force someone to take his hand and make him sign it or say, I'm going to take away your constitutional rights if you don't sign this document. I'm just going to say on the record, let the record reflect, defendant is present, defendant is hearing me, defendant refuses to sign the release conditions. They're still in effect, they still apply. Here, the judge could have done a lot of things. His first inquired what it, first of all said, this is not a contract, sir, uh, so that's not an issue. Why do you think it's a contract? You know, and you get your answer. The other thing the judge could say is fine, you don't have to sign it. Um, it's gonna be put as a document that you refuse to sign. That's perfectly okay. You've signed, seen it, you've read it. And also too, when remember with a pro per, when they're saying I don't understand, you might want to be, because that might be actually true. <laughs> you might want to say, what is it, sir, that you don't understand? Maybe I could explain it to you. 
so that you do understand it. So try to be compassionate. Try to understand this is not a lawyer. You can't really hold them. Well, you do hold them to the same standards, but you might want to be a little bit more um, uh, compassionate, understanding, because maybe they really don't understand that by spending five minutes explaining it to them, you might get cooperation. Oh, that's what it says. OK, that's no problem. I'll sign it. And if they don't, then just say, fine, you're not, then you're not signing it. We'll move on. Um, now, what they want to point out, though, is that you don't have to allow them to represent themselves if they're causing trouble, but it has to be serious trouble. And what they say is um, a criminal defendant holds a constitutional right to self-representation. This is not absolute and may be revoked if the defendant deliberately engages in serious and obstructive misconduct. It's pretty hard with that standard to say, I don't understand this document. I'm not a lawyer. I just was handed it, and I think it's a contract. It's pretty hard to say that's seriously serious and obstructive misconduct. That's someone saying, I'm a pro per and I don't understand this. Um, Defendant Underwood challenged the Superior Court's revocation of his right to self-representation, which occurred just 27 minutes after the court granted that right, when the defendant refused to sign a comprehensive pretrial conference statement that he did not prepare or understand. So they vacate and, re and remand the defendant's conviction and sentence because the defendant's conduct does not rise to the level of serious and obstructive misconduct. And the court neither, keep this in mind, the court neither warned the defendant nor tried less severe measures to gain compliance. For instance, what is it you don't understand? Maybe I could explain that to you. Or if you won't sign it, are we require that to be signed. And if you can't sign it, I can't force you. But then I would have to uh, get granted continuance, give you time to look at it, give you time to think about it, write your own pretrial statement that you want or pretrial conference statement. Or eventually, if you tried everything, first of all, I would just say, fine, don't sign it. But if you don't want to do that, I'd say, you need to think about this. We'll give you some time. If you won't sign it, I find that this is seriously obstructive conduct and I'm going to uh, appoint the lawyer to represent you. So keep that in mind. Um, it has to be more than, well, you won't sign my document. How dare you? I'm going to remove your constitutional right. So keep that in mind. But they also go on to point out that the right to represent oneself is not absolute and may be terminated when the defendants deliberately engages in serious and obstructive misconduct. The right of separate representation is not a license to abuse the dignity of the courtroom. And you know how I am on dignity. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> Neither is it a license not to comply with the relevant rules of procedure or substantive law. The Arizona Supreme Court has interpreted serious and obstructive misconduct to include serious violations of court orders and rules when the conduct signifies that the continued self-representation would undermine the court's authority or ability to conduct the proceedings in an efficient and orderly manner. So this tells you if you're going to do this, look for these issues make sure you make a record on each of these issues but don't do it unless it is serious try to be compassionate try to be explanatory try to give uh time 
for them to consider. Again, like it's different say on the day of trial, I want to represent myself. Okay, well then I'm going to take 30 days to, you know, do these things or have this time. This was a pre-trial setting for crying out loud. Give them an opportunity to change their mind. Give them an opportunity to read it. Give them an opportunity to do their own statement if they want to do it. But keep that in mind, okay? Um, so uh, you can do it, but do it in limited circumstances. Make sure you make a huge record if you're going to do it. Always remember, if you're going to stop someone's constitutional right, you better have a good record because it's going up on, a, on appeal. And you need to let those courts know why you were forced to do this. Not just you got mad, and, and I'm not saying the judge did in this case. Um, you got mad and said, well, fine, I'll, te I'll teach you a lesson. I will, uh, you're not going to represent yourself. Take your time. Give them time. Warn them. Okay, um, let's go on to the next case. Um, this case has to do with, they read Miranda rights. Um, what I always found as a prosecutor was greatest. I read it off a card. And here's the card and I'm going to read it now to you. Sometimes they don't do it. Oh, I'm really smart and I do it by memory. Well, that gets you in trouble. In this case, I assume the officer did it by memory and left out that you can have a, a lawyer with you during questioning. He did say you can have it before questioning. And of course, the judge said that's enough. Uh, he would do the, he did other rights too, but he didn't do the thing of during questioning. And the court said that's enough. Um, but of course, it gave an appeal issue. So if they if they use the card, that's great. And then when they have them read the card into the record so that the things are there. And remember too, be careful about how those just say, well, I read a Miranda rights. Oh, well, that's good. I'm glad you did. <laughs> now, what you may think is Miranda rights, Maybe what the cop thinks is Miranda rights. The record doesn't reflect that. What you may think is Miranda rights, the cop may think other things are Miranda rights. And again, if you don't have them read the rights, the record doesn't reflect that, especially when the defendant tries to say that isn't what he read me. So make sure that you uh, bring that up. Uh, have them read the rights if you're doing what's called a voluntariness hearing. Now, in felony court, they do that on every single trial. They don't tend to do that in misdemeanor court, but if they do, Takes takes like two minutes. Have them read the rights that they read them. In this case, they read out the rights, and they and the defendant was advised that um, let me get it here. Defendant was told the following: You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to the presence of an attorney to assist you prior to questioning. Then the officer goes, um, and if you cannot afford one, one will be provided. One will be provided one for you. OK, do you understand those rights? Now they said um, you left out the part about the other part. Um, so about during questioning. Now what the court went on to say the advisory must. First of all, they don't have to be. The court doesn't say this is what you have to say word for word. This is not particular. This is Miranda rights. And they say the advisory must convey the following essential information. One, that he has the right to remain silent. Two, that anything he says can be used against him in a court of law. Three, that he has a right to the presence of an attorney. And four, that if he cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for him prior to any questioning if he so desires. They go, although every element of the advisory must be conveyed, the courts do not dictate the precise language. As long as the sum total of statements in the Miranda advisory reasonably conveys the essential information, the warning is sufficient. 
Nevertheless, the advisory must inform the defendant of the right to counsel exists before and during questioning and must convey the message that appointed counsel cannot and must not convey the message that appointed counsel cannot be made available until some future time. However, we emphasize that while a Miranda advisory reasonably conveys Rios's rights, the better practice is to specifically state the defendant has the right to counsel's presence before and during interrogation. So remember, it doesn't have to be specific language, but it has to convey those specific rights to the defendant. So keep that in mind. And again, it's a much better, you don't have anything to do with this as a judge, but it's a much better practice if the officers just read from a card because then they don't have to, oh, did I get it right or not? Let's go on to the next case. This has to do with advisory group advisories outside the presence of the judge. Um, it depends on how you practice in your courts. Um, what I do when I do uh, arraignments is I, they play a tape before I come into court advising the defendant of all their rights. Then when I deal with the defendant individually, I again read every defendant their individual rights um, and ask them if they want to give them up. In this case, what happens is the judge, they play the tape recording for outside the presence of the judge for all the defendants. Then when the judge takes your plea, the judge goes, Michelle, did you hear the tape? And Michelle goes, what tape? <laughs> Michelle goes, yes, I heard the tape. Did, um, did you have any problems with those tapes or do you have any questions? No, I don't. And then once the plea is taken, then there's a special action that, hey, wait a minute. Um, the judge has to do the advisory personally with me under 17.2. And they say, in this case, that's true. The judge does have to do personal advisement um, of your rights with you there. Um, but we're sorry to say, Michelle, even though the judge didn't file rule 17.2, no harm, no foul. You're out of luck. You're out of here. Um, because you can't show any prejudice, we're, the plea stands. But keep it in mind, just do it yourself <laughs> um, so that uh, you don't have this issue. Because who, who knows if somehow they'll find harm or foul. I always do it. I always make sure they know their rights. I always read them to them myself. Again, you have to determine how you're going to do it in your court. But remember, Rule 17.2 talks about you personally advising the defendant. Next thing I wanted to talk about on this case, which is important, is Sometimes they do uh, the practice of doing joint pleas. For instance, uh, you have um, cases where you have uh, four uh, driving on a suspended license cases and you do all four defendants at the same time. You read them their rights, all that. Did you understand Michelle? Yes. Did you understand Jim? Yes. Did you understand Charles? Yes. And um, do you want to waive those rights, Michelle? Yes. Jim, do you want to waive those rights? Yes. Charles, do you want to waive those rights? They don't say one way or the other if that's good or bad. It's a footnote. They'll leave that for a future time. So keep that in mind that that might be an issue in the future. I still do that, but what I do is I only do it if the sentence is the same and the charge was the same. Sometimes people are known to say, well, Michelle, you have a class one. Jim, you have a class three. Charles, you have a class two. Uh, Michelle, you have to do one day in jail. Jim, you have to do a fine. Charles, you have to do a program. We'll do you all together. I don't think that's a good way to do things. There isn't a case one way or the other, but remember, this is what they're looking at, so be careful with that if it comes up. 
Sure. And I'll just chime in with sure. uh, the Maricopa County Justice Courts do have a best practice that we just adopted on Monday on uh, de dealing with Haggerty. And we also have a best practice on the Stowe subsection I suspended jail time issue. All right, back to you, Judge. Okay. Uh, one of the cases I wanted to bring up that doesn't really affect us that much is State versus Perez Gutierrez. It was basically. Um, it's kind of weird because I think the statute says or the rule says sentences should be consecutive unless the court finds reasons it shouldn't be. Another says the court should either stack or run concurrent and give reasons why. In this case, the court stacks the sentences. We don't really do that much in justice court, so I don't really list it, but I want you to be aware of if you're going to stack cases, put on the record why you stacked it. This is why under this case, I think stacking them one after the other is important or is appropriate. Again, I haven't really seen that in justice courts or in city courts, but if you do that, keep in mind you should list why you're going to think it's appropriate in this case to stack the sentence. Now, that was number 25, sorry. Uh, we'll now go to 26. Now, this case is interesting because I think it has a bunch of different issues. Um, and in this case, what happens is a person's shot and killed. Police don't know who did it. They're looking for a Mr. Scott, which just so happens to be the defendant. Now, the problem is, is they can't really find Mr. Scott or the, well, they know where he is, but they don't really have evidence against him. So what they do is they go in and get a search warrant on the defendant and they say, um, we want to get DNA from him. And what's important is the officer says, uh, I, I don't remember the number. Several people have said they think Mr. Scott is the defendant. Now, the judge grants the search warrant. They go get Mr. Scott's DNA. Then they compare it, and his DNA is found on the shell casings. So they bring Mr. Scott in. Mr. Scott, why did you shoot the defend the victim? I didn't shoot the defendant. I wasn't there. I don't know what you're talking about. Yes, you do. Why did you shoot the defendant? repeatedly says, I don't know what you're talking about. I wasn't even there. Um, I didn't. There's nothing there. Then they go, well, Mr. Scott, you know how we got that DNA from you? Guess what? It matches. What do you have to say to that? Self-defense, self-defense, self-defense. So Mr. Scott is charged. They do a suppression hearing, or I shouldn't say a suppression hearing. They do a Frank's hearing. Now, Frank's hearing is a case out of federal court that basically said if the search warrant is done by false information or misleading information or leaving out exonerating information that's important to the search warrant, then we can say that search warrant's no good anymore. The judge should then remove that information from the search warrant and decide with the good information that's still left in it, would I have found probable cause? If I did, it doesn't matter. If I wouldn't have found probable cause, the evidence is gone. So the judge in this case finds because not only did several people not say it was Mr. Scott, no one said it was Mr. Scott, except for one person who said he heard from someone else that someone else said it might be Mr. Scott. <laughs> so the judge finds that was reckless misstatement. Some people might have found that's intentional misstatement, which is a worse thing to have. And the, uh, the judge finds when you remove that information, the search warrant does not have probable cause and would not have been granted. So he throws out the DNA 
found on the shell casings and because they got it through a search warrant they shouldn't have got. Now then the defense says that's fine. We wanted that thrown out. You did the right thing judge. The next thing we want you to do judge the next right thing is you need to throw out the statement. Because the statement is the fruit of the poisonous tree, Wong Sun or whatever that case was from 300 years ago. <laughs> it's not 300 years ago, but it seems that way. But that case says that if you get this evidence based on the fruit of the poisonous tree, you don't get to accuse it. So it's gone too. Judge says, no, I don't find it's the fruit of the poisonous tree. The confession comes in, even though it's not a confession. It is still, remember, I didn't, I didn't commit the crime because of self-defense. The problem is, is you can't even prove he's there without the statement. So the, the statement comes in, the jury doesn't believe it was self-defense. As we all know, once self-defense is raised, the prosecution has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt it wasn't self-defense. I guess in this case, they thought he did. The, they thought, the jury thought the state did and convicted. Goes up on appeal. And the Court of Appeals says the, um, not only were well, the judge was right in suppressing the evidence from the search warrant because there wasn't probable cause, and the statement was the fruit of the poisonous tree and should be thrown out. Now, what's interesting about it is there's a strong defense, a strong dissent saying no, it should come in. Now, I didn't read one of the reasons I would have thought of as a judge or I would have said as a prosecutor it is, um, okay, you're going to throw out the search warrant, but it still would have been done through inevitable discovery. And the reason it would have been done through inevitable discovery is we thought Mr. Scott was the person before we even had the evidence. We could have followed Mr. Scott. We could have watched him take a drink from a restaurant and grabbed the class and gotten DNA. And we would have done that if we didn't have a search warrant. We, if he smokes, we could have watched him smoke when he threw away his cigarette. We could charge him with littering and get his DNA from the cigarette. And what's interesting is, uh, I don't know if you've been following the Boston rape case, where the New York lawyer was arrested for rapes like 15 years ago. And they got, they started to suspect this new, he had been, went to law school in Boston, raped the, allegedly raped the women, and then was a lawyer in New York. They thought it was him. And they followed him around and got glasses that he used. And they got his DNA off the glasses because I guess they couldn't get a search warrant. And then um, they checked it out and the DNA matched the rape suspect. And he's now um, been charged in Boston um, and is out on bail pending a trial. But so they could have done that. So I would have argued if I was a prosecutor, it's inevitable discovery. Even if we hadn't got the search warrant, if a judge had denied the search warrant, we would have inevitably discovered it because we already suspected Mr. Scott and would have got his DNA another way. As far as I know, that wasn't argued. Now what's interesting in the dissent is, the dissent says, uh, because there were charges filed, that's an intervening circumstance. So therefore, if there's an intervening circumstance, it's not fruit of the poisonous tree because there was an intervening circumstance. The, the main opinion says, nah, there wasn't. That's just the uh, that's just the charging document. The next thing that the judge says, which is interesting in the dissent is, well, police are allowed to lie. So even if they didn't have DNA, they could have said, we got your DNA. We got it off a cigarette you threw away, but I don't smoke. Well, he did that day, um, but they could have said that, and then he could have said, oh, wait, now that you have my DNA, because um, remember, they're allowed to lie to get a defendant to confess. So it was an interesting dissent, but at this point, everything's been thrown out, so keep that in mind. It also talks about a Frank's hearing, which we don't see much in lower courts, but if you see it, you go, oh, 
Frank's hearing. I know what that is. And proceed with the hearing. Next case I want to talk about was number 27. And this has to do with the Supreme Court just held, uh, you know, on resisting arrest. There's three ways to do it. Uh, one, two, and three. Three is what we normally get, the passive resistance. Uh, one and two is a felony. Now I'm sure you're saying, well, what do we care? It's a felony. We'll never see it. It's a class six felony, which means you could see it if they designated a misdemeanor. And what the Supreme Court said, what they said is, is, hey, since there's two ways of convicting the committing the crime, the jury might not have been a unanimous verdict because some of them might have found on one, some of them might have found on two. Um, we don't get that issue because three is just one way when it's a misdemeanor. Now, if it comes down to us, what's important is Supreme Court said that the resisting arrest is a unified statute, it's a single unified statute, so it doesn't matter. Still get a unanimous verdict, whether some find it as one, some find it as two. So keep that in mind if it's ever comes down to you as a one or two, as a three, it doesn't matter, which is what we normally see. Final case to bring up, because we only got five minutes left, is this is a uh, lower court, I mean, up to, up to Superior Court. So it's some, a case you cannot cite, but it gives you a lot of instructive material on when you can decide not to appoint a lawyer for someone. There's a case that is instructive that you can use and cite, but in that case, the judge allowed, had 18 public defenders on the case. You don't wanna do 18 public defenders, because in that case you're going, I don't know where you're gonna find them. In this case, the person had four public defenders. He represents himself at trial, he gets convicted and he wants to do an appeal, but he wants a lawyer for the appeal. Court appoints him a lawyer. This is lawyer number four. And what he does is he tapes the lawyer. He tapes every lawyer every time and then puts it on the news because he is a journalist and he thinks this should all be disclosed. And the lawyer's like, no, this is a private conversation between me and you. I'm not gonna agree to being taped. Um, and you put my phone number on your uh, published, you know, it's like YouTube or something like that. And uh, you put your phone number on, my phone number on it, and I've been getting calls and haven't been able to use my phone for four days because of that. So I should be withdrawn from the case. And the judge agrees, you should be withdrawn from the case. And the defendant says, hey, I want another public defender. The judge says, no, I'm gonna find you waived it by your conduct. And what's important in this case is the judge sets up a very good record. Defendant says, I know lawyers aren't going to like this. I'm doing it anyways. I don't care what lawyers like or don't like, and I'm going to continue doing this type of conduct. So the judge finds the defendant is not going to change his ways. Defendant has been through several lawyers. Defendant is doing something that no lawyer will accept. And defendant said, I'm still going to do it. So therefore, the judge finds he's waived his right to a lawyer, won't give him a lawyer, it goes up, and they say, no, the judge was fine. Look at all these reasons, we're not giving you a lawyer. So you don't have to wait till you get 18 lawyers. You can do it before that. Make sure, again, because you're talking about someone's rights, that you give them uh, all the opportunity you, exp you give them the opportunity to bury themselves. Like in this case, I'm still going to do it. I don't care what anyone says. I don't care that the lawyers don't like it. And you set up the record really good. And that's about the hour and a half. Any questions? And thank you so much, uh, Judge Blake. Uh, any questions for Judge Blake? 
All right, no questions at all. Uh, what I want to know is how does Michelle get a comfy seat like that on her bench? <laughs> all right, the co-jet certificate is at the end of the packet. Michelle, did you want to say something? Nope. I think someone else is saying something. All right, have a great day. Charles, could you send me a copy of the CLE thing so I can use it? A copy of the what? A copy of the CLE, uh, CLE certificate? Yes, I can. Thank you, sir. All right. Well, have a fun time.